Hey guys, welcome back to the Tipsy Ghosts. We are your tipsy hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. Hey guys. Hi. I have a surprise for you guys. Okay. Okay. I was waiting for like a response yes, there. Okay. Yes, sorry. I love surprises. Oh, I know you do. Um, so think back to the stories where I've had like German words or tried to have German accents. Those are our favorite. I know. And you've made me feel so good about them. <laughs> you you genuinely do a really excellent job at German. You have a really good accent, like in everything. <laughs> it's a good dialect. I don't know if that's a skill, but I feel my, like it is. My head is getting bigger by the second. I don't know. <laughs> With my German accent, which I'm sure anybody who speaks German is probably like, I was uh, saying any no. accent. <laughs> Okay. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I decided it was time for me to go ahead and learn real German. As opposed to fake German. <laughs> well, yeah. What I was trying to speak was, was as not correct. To, as opposed to English with a German accent. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Reading English words with a German accent yes. that I made up in my head is usually how I was doing it. But I decided to go ahead and, and learn German for you guys. Prove say it. something to me. As a surprise. Okay. I want you to say something to me. I want to hear it. Say oh, words. Say words. Talk German uh, to me. Guten Tag. Okay. <laughs> I need a little bit more than Guten Tag. <laughs> I know that one. Guckfeld. Oh, Guckfeld. What does that mean? That means good evening. Oh, okay. In Norwegian, because I am also learning another language. Oh, my God. Look at us. Who are we? Look at you guys. <clears throat> I'm still working on English. I've been working on it for 32 years. <laughs> you can I recommend going great. <laughs> um, Duolingo, and you can learn English while we learn Languages we don't speak. This sounds like a sponsored ad, and it is not. We just found it and loved it. It's free, and it's addicting. It's kind of free. Yeah, it is kind of free. I did the the premium the one. Plus. Yeah, I, I play it too much. I get addicted. She really does. I know. I get addicted to any games like that. Like, I have a problem sometimes. I want to hear you say more than Guten Tag. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, ich heiße Sarah. Oh. I'm guessing that's my name is Sarah. Wie heißen Sie? What's my name? Yeah. Lindsay. <laughs> yes. Uh, really, I have, I've learned a lot of random phrases in there. And I was telling Boydston earlier, like, I'm much better at reading off of the screen. Yeah. And I can do fine in the little lessons that they have. Um, but retaining is a little bit hard. So there's only very few things that I can retain. And one of them is, Como si dos buchtebieren bitte? Which is, could you spell that, please? And I don't oh. know why that one sticks in my head. I heard butterbeer. Como si das buchtebeer in bitte? And then I sent them one of a screenshot that I learned that is going to be just, I'm sure, extremely helpful here very soon. So, ja, meine Schnecke kommt aus Österreich. It sounds Any guesses? Beautiful. No. Uh, yeah. Yes, my snail is from Austria. <laughs> it sounds like it's really applicable to your life. Is that even a sentence one needs to know? Apparently. If, if she had an Austrian snail, yes. There's a lot about my owl, too. My owl never goes hiking. What's um, your owl? Um, mein Euler. <laughs> your owl never goes yes. hiking. Yes. <laughs> my mein Euler wanders nie. Oh, I love that. Yes. Wanders. Mine have been mostly about dogs and spiders. Spiders is one of my I'm favorite. I'm really jealous about that. Animals must about. be like a thing that they want you to know. That's a good What's been your favorite word so far? Spider. Irikop. Yep. Ooh, I like that one. My most applicable sentence has been, I like cheese. Oh, yeah. Obviously, me too. Because I love cheese. Käse. This in German is mm. cheese. Mm. Like queso. Oh, yeah. There we go. Except for with a K-A-S-E. Listen, I stand by what I said <laughs> and that you guys need to learn Latin because that is where all languages come from. 
you know, I feel like when you work in the medical field, you have to learn some of it, and that's, that's enough. That's very true. And I'm like, eh, a lot I'm of over it. I stand by it. Latin. It has been very fun, and I've enjoyed it quite a bit. I have a few phrases on my list that I would like to learn that are more applicable to us. Okay. But I will wait until oh. I know what I'm saying. But we, I, we did look up ghost. Uh, that was my Geist, next question. Yeah. Geist. Yeah. Geist. Geist. Yep. That's all I know. I don't know how to put it into a, a sentence. It's very complicated. Okay. I believe you. Masculine, feminine, neutral, verb, subject switching. I don't quite understand. So bear with me. Anybody out there who actually speaks German and you're like, oh my gosh, please, please stop talking. <laughs> I am driving people crazy because I do try to say words here and there. Meine Tochter ist klug. My daughter. My daughter. My daughter. Ah. <laughs> Is smart. <laughs> I thought it was like your toilet is clogged. I know, right? <laughs> I heard doctor. <laughs> I learned one today was Einfach. And I was like, ooh. Well, that sounds, sounds a little dirty. bit like Mindfuck yeah. right there. I know. What is it? Uh, easy. Oh, well, that is so similar. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Shot. Oh, is yeah. Meat. Oh, yeah. Give me but a it big like piece shit. of shot. Like, yeah, like a shot. I like meat. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> One of the weirdest words I remember from Spanish in high school was piso, which is floor, because my teacher said, you piece on the floor. Oh. So it's piso. But you didn't forget it, did I, you? I've never forgotten piso means floor. Mit <laughs> that is roommate. Yes, yeah, sounds just like roommate, right? I think I have it a little easier because... <laughs> I Googled, whenever I learned she was learning German, I Googled, okay, well, what's the easiest language for English language speakers to learn? And it is Norwegian. Okay. And I thought you just chose Norwegian because you like Norway. No, I took the easy way out. Um, but it's really not that easy. Um, but there are similar words like egg is et egg, uh-huh. salt, salt, pepper. <laughs> like, I mean, it literally just sounds easy. like our words with an accent. Yes. yes. Yeah. Tomat is tomato. Oh, tomaten. Yeah, see? Tomato. How about Speisekarte? Oh my gosh. That's a menu. Your accent so much. (laughs) You just sound so angry, but I love it. It's just intense. And who would have thought? Oh, and I learned finally, I learned what um, hospital was. Ooh, what's hospital? Um, So I I learned how to say I work at the hospital, and it's Ich Albeit aus Krankenhaus. Like Krankenwagen? Like Krankenwagen, which is actually an ambulance. I was right. Oh, Crunken House and Crunken Wagon. Yes. <laughs> they carried the Crunkens. <laughs> they housed the Crunkens. <laughs> Makes so much sense. Okay. Well, anyways, on that note, what are we doing tonight? We are doing a joint project topic. Not topic. I'm thinking like group project. I don't know why it's a group. <laughs> it's a joint project topic. <laughs> project. <laughs> we are doing a group topic on Near-death experiences. Ooh. Thank you. Even though you already know what it's about, thank you. (laughs) Okay, well, I get to start us off. You know, I was telling them that when looking this up, it turns out that there's quite a bit of research and literature, a lot of things that you can find on this topic. So I was just going to start us off by talking about some examples and firsthand accounts of near-death experiences, which we... We've got to be cool with the lingo because anywhere you look up or watch episodes about it, they call them NDEs. Okay. Oh, thank you, because I abbreviated it as NDE in my entire notes. Oh, yeah. see, that annoyed me. So I typed out near-death experiences nope. every time. I got um, lazy. <laughs> that's okay. No problem. Right, I'm going to call it an NDE. Okay. You do it. Okay. It just reminds me of like a 
What's the thing you have to sign whenever you don't NDA. want NDA. Yes. Non-disclosure agreement. Thank you. <laughs> I read her mind. You are my brain. <laughs> I literally read her mind right away. <laughs> I was thinking of non-compete, which is not okay. what that is. <laughs> Similar. Anyhow. But yeah. Okay. I'm, Similar, but you were wrong. I am not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Start us off. What? Uh, okay. All right. Examples <laughs> and firsthand accounts of NDEs. When you look it up, I just Googled most popular example or most well-known example of Indy, and it was Pam Lowry. And her story is that in 1991, at the age of 35, Pam had a brain operation in Phoenix, Arizona. During part of the operation, she had no brainwave activity and no blood flowing to her brain, which rendered her clinically dead. She claimed to have heard a sound that seemed to pull her out of her body and allowed her to float above the operating room and watch the doctors perform the operation. She claims that she felt more aware than normal. Like she was just like way more awake and in tune with her senses than she normally was. She said she saw the surgical saw, but that it looked like an electric toothbrush and could hear conversations (laughs) between the operating room staff. She said at one point she noticed a presence and was pulled towards the light and began seeing different people within the light, including her grandmother, an uncle, and other friends and family. She said the longer that she was there, the more that she enjoyed it. But at some point, she was told that she had to go back. She said her uncle was the one who brought her back to her body, but she didn't want to go. So he basically shoved her in it. And <laughs> Get back in there. <laughs> that's what he said. He's like, nope, you can't stay. Bye. Um, and she described it as feeling like jumping into ice water and then coming back into her body, which... No, thank you. Waking up during surgery and seeing your surgical saw. I was going to say, waking up during surgery is its own horrible thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Okay, so I did watch the Netflix episode of their docuseries, Surviving Death. Mm-hmm. Have you yes. guys seen it? I saw the first episode. Well, the first episode is the only one about near-death experiences. The oh. other ones have to do with other things surrounding death. So mediums, what happens after death, like signs from beyond, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Oh, so that sounds fascinating. It is kind of fascinating, I thought. Um, but the first one really kind of went into some details about near-death experiences. And and we we meet a doctor. She was a spine surgeon that was in Chile, and she was kayaking on a river, which she was, you know, very skilled at. She had been doing this for several years, so this was not new to her. Um, but she did get turned over and under about 10 feet of water, and she says that she had no pain and was more in tune, which is kind of a theme there, more in tune with her body and could tell everything that was going on but didn't have pain. She said she felt her bones breaking oh. in her body. Um, and that she was slowly losing air. And she claimed to have been underwater for several minutes. And mm-hmm. by the time that they were able to pull her back up to the surface. And according to the people that she was with, when they pulled her out of the water, she was purple and bloated already by that time and and dead. She was dead, dead at that time. Um, and her being a physician, she says that if that person would have been in the hospital, that I would have called them dead. And she has memories of them doing, one person in particular doing CPR, and he's telling her, I know you're in there. I can, I can know you're in there. You need to come back. I can, I need you back here. And that she came back to her body and came to. But by that time that she was gone, she said that she kind of went into a different world, basically, um, and was 
dark all around with light at a tunnel like you typically hear and that she was seeing um, loved ones and she actually really liked it and wanted to stay. And it's a similar thing where they basically said, no, you can't stay. You've got stuff to do. You need to go back. And that's when she came back into her body. And the other thing I found interesting about that story was, you know, they were they were in the river, which was quite a bit away from the uh, road. So by the time they had taken her back down, they loaded her up onto a kayak, uh, brought her back down to the roadway, and there just happened to be an ambulance or a crunken wagon. <laughs> to take her to the crunken house. <laughs> to take her to the crunken house, which apparently in Chile uh, during that time, which was the 90s, is like unheard of. It's it, like impossible to even get a hold of the ambulances there. So who knows why that that happened is probably just crazy that they happened to be there. Uh, but she ended up having to have several surgeries for broken legs, broken back. I mean, she was in bad, bad shape. Yeah. But obviously, it changed her whole perspective on NDEs. All right. So the other one I was going to tell you from that episode, which I thought was particularly interesting, was a woman who was pregnant with her second baby. And she had mentioned that she had had a lot of trouble conceiving with this one. And I'm not really sure why that was important, but it kind of played into her story a little bit. So when they finally did get pregnant with their second baby, she started having these, she called them premonitions, where she would have basically visions of things that would happen right before they did. And one particular day, she was walking in the park, and she saw a fountain that was dry. But she said, like, in her mind's eye, she could see the water flowing that turned to blood. And she knew that she was going to be hemorrhaging. So she called her husband and they went to the hospital. And when they showed up, everything was fine. But the next day, she started bleeding like pretty bad and uh, had to go back to the hospital. And they found out she had placenta previa, which is a pretty, you know, big complication for, for pregnancies. Um, so she had several of these premonitions and she had one that showed her that she had to die for the baby to live. Hmm. And when she finally went into labor and went to the hospital to have the baby, she was in the OR. She was having a C-section. I think she looked over to them and said, like, I- I'm going to have to go so that that he can stay. So while they're doing the C-section, she the baby comes out. Everything's fine. And then as soon as they get the baby out, she flatlines. And she had one of the out-of-body experiences as well. She even, when she came back, because obviously this is an ND, she's telling this story. But when she came back, she was telling how she could see specific people's faces next to her. And she could see her OB and her surgeon there standing there saying, no way. Because she had told her before like she had this premonition that this was going to happen. And she was like shaking her head and saying, no way. And uh, the woman said that she could see her doing that. And so when she woke up, she told her, I saw you <laughs> doing this. And this is what happened. And she was flatlined and, and dead on the table. Um, and that she had also, you know, had one of these like floating out of body experiences and kind of went further, further away, ended up coming back into her body, but she could see several things in the room, around the room, on top of tables that she wouldn't have been able to see from her position either in the bed. And it turns out she had, gosh, I want to make sure I'm saying it right, but it was one of the amniotic fluid embolus. And that has an extremely high mortality rate. So it's just crazy that she survived it to mm-hmm. begin with. It's like a 2% chance 
of survival with that. So the fact that she survived it anyways was pretty crazy. But then she's been studied several times because she can tell the, tell the story and also describe who was where, what they were saying, even though they were whispering it to themselves. <laughs> she said she was right there and she could see it. Um, what they were wearing, the shoes that they were wearing. I mean, it was pretty crazy in detail. So those were some of the most fascinating NDEs that I heard. But there are several more. In fact, there's a whole website dedicated to NDEs that people can go to and share theirs. All right, Lindsay, you're up. All right, I'm up. So I'm going to talk about when really people started getting interested in NDEs. 1890s. <laughs> Can't with you guys. 1890s. That's what all the doctors called it. I feel like I'm being cool. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are really cool. We Thank got you. the lingo. All right. Victor Egger, he began to study near-death experiences in France regarding climbers' stories of a life review that they experienced during falls. This is going to be the most terrifying, like, NDE. Yeah, you're that, a climber and you're falling. That was on the episode, too. Yes. We talked about it. <laughs> so he was interviewing them and began to study this. 1982, Albert Heim, he began studying near-death experiences as well. He spoke with another terrifying thing, workers that fell off the scaffolds. Oh, God. War soldiers with injuries and, again, climbers who had fallen from great heights and other individuals who also had close death um, experiences like drownings or accidents. And this was the first time that the phenomenon was described as a clinical syndrome, which isn't that long ago. 1982. Right. Yeah, it isn't that long ago. <laughs> okay, stop it. I know you're going to say something about it. <laughs> so young. <laughs> Still so trendy and with it. <laughs> 1968, Celia Green, she published an analysis of over 400 firsthand accounts of -of out-of-body experiences. This was the first attempt to classify such experiences rather than viewing them as hallucinations, which it had been viewed as prior. 1969, Swiss-American psychiatrist and pioneer in the near-death studies, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, published On Death and Dying, What the Dying Have to Teach Doctors, Nurses, Clergy, and Their Own Families. Fun fact, I have read this book. Of course you have. It was required reading in undergrad. <laughs> so don't ask me about it because I probably cannot remember it, but I've read it. Um, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is very famous in the death and dying and grief uh, world. She is probably, most people know her from the DABDA, the Kubler-Ross model of grief. Oh, yeah. That's Denial, say. anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So yeah. I know that. I didn't know that that's what it was called. It's called DABDA. <laughs> That's how I remember it. She just dabbed. <laughs> but listen, I knew it as dabbed up before dabbing became a thing. <laughs> Anyways, that is just what she is famous for. She did a lot of studies in death, a lot with hospice, terminally ill patients, treating death with dignity. So she's kind of like the pioneer as far as how we handle death in nursing homes and everything like that today. But she also studied near-death experiences. Psychiatrist Raymond Moody in 1975 coined the term near-death experience a.k.a. NDE. <laughs> so cool. This hmm. is an umbrella of sorts for out-of-body experiences, panoramic life review, the light, the tunnel, etc. So yeah, researchers have identified commonly reported characteristics that help define near-death experiences. Not NDEs. <laughs> like she's going to add on like five minutes to our total <laughs> time. Six pages. Because you're uh, these- <laughs> These can include the following. One, the impression of being outside one's physical body. 
Two visions of decreased re- or deceased relatives. <laughs> decreased. <laughs> they would be decreased, yeah. And religious Whoa. figures. <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong. A decreased number of relatives. And three, transcendence beyond the boundaries of space and time <laughs> currently known to man. So an example of that, you see, hear, feel, experience things seemingly outside of this world. The following list of traits have been the most reported across the board by those who have had near-death experiences. One, an awareness of being dead, positive emotions, a sense of removal from the world, and a sense of peace, well-being, and painlessness. An out-of-body experience or the perception of one's body from an outside position. So an example of this is the report of watching medical professionals perform resuscitation efforts. A tunnel experience or a sense of moving up or through a passageway, usually dark, which leads to the next, which is a rapid or sudden movement towards or being surrounded by a powerful light. An intense feeling of unconditional love and acceptance, encountering being beings of light, beings dressed in white, and the possibility of being reunited with deceased loved ones. Receiving a life review, commonly referred to as seeing your life flash before your eyes. Approaching a border or a decision to return to your body, often followed by a reluctance to return. And finally, suddenly finding oneself back inside their body. So, more simplified, these have been further subdivided into stages. The first is peace. The next is body separation. After that, entering darkness, and then seeing light, and finally, entering another realm of existence through the light. So, neuropsychologists have concluded, however, that there is not a fixed sequence of events. It's kind of unique to each person as they experience it. These are just the most common um, themes along the way. Interpretations of near-death experiences typically fall in line with the individual's own culture, philosophical, and or religious beliefs. So the example provided with this uh, was that in the United States, where 46% of the population believes in guardian angels, these individuals will identify themselves as being an angel in their near-death experience, whereas Hindus will often identify themselves as messengers of the god of death. So the after effects of near-death experiences are often associated with changes in personality and outlook on life. Individuals commonly find a greater appreciation for life, higher self-esteem, greater compassion for others, less concern for acquiring material wealth, a heightened sense of purpose and self-understanding, an increased desire to learn, elevated spirituality, greater sensitivity and concern for the planet, and a feeling of being more intuitive. On the other hand, researchers have found that not all after effects were beneficial. There were some circumstances where changes in attitude and behavior led to psychological and psychospiritual problems. Something I was curious about, though, was if a traumatic situation like violent crimes, uh, suicide, would have an effect on near-death experiences. And for example, a suicide generally is accompanied by intensely sad, negative, hopeless feelings. Uh, And my question was, would these cases have a greater incidence of an unpleasant near-death experience? And research has found that, no, there isn't a statistically significant difference in the near-death experience, no matter the cause. 
So interesting. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on the website that I was mentioning. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I looked it up. It is Enderf. I don't what? <laughs> Enderf.com. Near Death Experience org. Very close. Near Death Experience Research Foundation. Damn it. Oh, I forgot the F. Enderf.org. All right. I love it. Enderf. Psychologist Chris French grouped NDEs together, and he described the spiritual model by saying, quote, the most popular interpretation is that the near-death experience is exactly what it appears to be to the person having the experience. So <laughs> that reminds me Wait. of <laughs> the time once he told me that I believe you That's exactly believe what I was that aliens. <laughs> you have to believe the person that is saying that they've had these experiences. Chris is what French, I get you, buddy. Chris I get French you. is condescending as F. Chris. I understand you, Chris. Chris, I can't tell if, you, <laughs> if you're being rude or... <laughs> Maybe he's just trying to be as like politically correct as he can right now. <laughs> well, that's very like uh, in the middle statement. Uh, the NDE would show that the soul or mind would leave the body upon death. It would provide information about a world where the soul would go after leaving Earth. I think that this is probably one of the more common things that you think of, like types of theories when you think of an NDE, like your soul leaves, yeah. you go to a different place that we can't describe. Um, a lot of times the phenomena cannot be explained. For example, patients having out-of-body experiences and being able to accurately describe their resuscitation procedures are unexpected events like you had mentioned and that is the theory i feel like this is not in my research but i feel like this is fascinating just because it's like basically studying whether there is an existence of the soul or not it it is kind of yeah okay Mm -hmm. so chris french also approached this from a psychological standpoint it is that if you believe it (laughs) (laughs) and he has three models the depersonalization expectancy and dissociation So the depersonalization method first, it was proposed in the 1970s by Russell Noyes and Roy Cletty. They suggested that the NDE is a form of depersonalization that people experience under emotional conditions such as, you know, life-threatening danger, um, and can best be understood as a hallucination. Remember, I talked about a little bit earlier, uh, in 1968 is when they first classified these experiences as, you know, NDEs versus just hallucinations. So this is before that. So basically they thought it was a hallucination. Uh, Depersonalization is a detachment within yourself regarding your mind or your body. So feelings such as the world is vague and in a dreamlike kind of state and like being on autopilot. According to this model, those who face their death become detached from their surroundings and including their own bodies. They no longer feel any emotions and they experience time distortion. So some limitations with this model, many subjects of NDE do not experience depersonalization. Um, They also report feeling quite lucid. Um, They report feeling that their sense of identity is not distorted, whereas in depersonalization, typically people feel like they're not even themselves. So it doesn't really line up with what a lot of people who experience NDE said. The expectancy model Basically says that while these experiences appear very real, they have actually been constructed in the mind, either consciously or on a subconscious level, in response to the traumatic stress of an encounter with death. Therefore, they are not real events. So it's similar to wish (laughs) fulfillment. Listen, this is what Chris says, okay? (laughs) Chris, a bone to pick. I do like that he (laughs) presents limitations to it, so let me get to it. (laughs) All right, so it's kind of similar to like wish fulfillment and self-fulfilling prophecies. Um... 
Basically, you think you're going to die because you're faced with this danger. You then experience certain things in accordance with what you expect or what you want to happen. So you're imagining a heavenly place because you're trying to soothe yourself and take yourself away from the trauma that your body is going through. Subjects use their own personal and cultural expectations to imagine a scenario that would protect them from what's happening. So some limitations here. Uh, Subjects report different religious scenarios than their own cultural and personal experiences. Another limitation, children's accounts of NDE are similar to adults, despite them being less strongly affected by cultural or religious influences about death. Dissociation model. So NDE, basically this model says that it is a form of withdrawal to protect an individual from a stressful event. So much as how our minds shut down during traumatic events to protect ourselves, this is kind of what happens. You're dissociating. Under extreme circumstances, people may detach themselves from unwanted feelings to avoid experiencing the emotional impact. So they are detached from their surroundings. There's also a birth model. And I feel like this like this had to come from Freud somewhere. I feel like Freud had a hand in this. I'm sure he did. <laughs> Does he talk about the penis? Oral fixations? Yeah. He talks about... And this isn't from Freud, but I'm just saying that. <laughs> it suggests that NDE can be a form of reliving the trauma of birth. So a baby goes like something he'd say. <laughs> from dark to light. Oh, <laughs> Here we go. And they are greeted by a light at the end of the tunnel, which is the birth canal. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> they're saying that the dying brain could be recreating the passage from a tunnel of darkness to one of light, warmth, and affection. <laughs> A.K.A. your mother's vagina. (laughs) People can say anything. You can't really say, no, that's not possible because nobody knows what really is happening. Well, one limitation with this birth model is that people report. It's called that. (laughs) It's weird. Okay. People report this tunnel experience, which is a very common, like, go towards the light. I mean, we all hear it. They report it even when they were born by a C-section. <laughs> yeah. Well, there goes that. And newborns also, which I feel like we all know this, do not possess the ability to register memories of their birth. Right. Nobody remembers their birth. That's my question. How do you... You don't. Freud. Base it off something you don't remember. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's why I think this or is the weakest model. Or do you subconsciously remember everything? That's what Freud would say. The unconscious and the subconscious remember How would everything. you even be able to test that? Freud... It's a little weird. He used a little too much cocaine. It's <laughs> my opinion. It helped unlock the I love subconscious. Him. I love him, but I hate him. I'm going to talk about the physiological explanations. So how people explain near-death experiences based on things happening within the body that could cause this so-called phenomenon. The medical side. The medical side, which I just want to point out, Lindsay refused to do because she didn't think she would <laughs> pronounce anything correctly. Or understand things I can do the psychological side. You do the medical. That's why we work. You say we work? <laughs> oh, <Aww>. gosh. <laughs> Sarah, look at her face. <laughs> I'll just third wheel it over here. It's fine. <laughs> She's like, you listen, and I, you know the you medical side, too. that I'm also a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are one and the same. Are we? And so <laughs> Thank you for trying to make me feel better. We work with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. I, yes. Okay. So anyway, physiological, physiological, what's happening within the body. And so by default, quite frankly, there are very technical and wordy uh, theories and ideas. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, I'm just going to present with a few theories and the general ideas behind them. 
And you would probably lose me anyway, so. Yeah. If you're interested in further information, I strongly encourage you to look into more details. It, it honestly is fascinating. I do have a book called Near-Death Experiences. Oh, that I see goes, it. It goes over all of the different theories and ideas. So further information, there's plenty out there. Go find it. I'm just going to give general ideas. Okay. And still, it's quite a bit. So the first theory is based off of neuroanatomical models. Got it. So how the brain can contribute to the experiences. This is mostly based on the brain. Okay. One of these models proposes brain damage to the right hemisphere of the brain contributes to near-death experiences characterized by out-of-body experiences, altered sense of time, and sensations of flying. Hmm. While... I believe I can fly. Damage to the left hemisphere <laughs> contributes to experiences characterized by a feeling of a presence, meeting and communicating with spirits, seeing glowing bodies, as well as hearing voices, sounds, and music. It always feels like somebody's watching me. So I, I was a little scraggly there. <laughs> <laughs> of your otherwise angelic voice? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a little scraggly. <laughs> okay. Beyond that, okay. further damage to the occipital cortex, which is responsible for, for vision, may lead to visual features of near-death experiences such as seeing a tunnel or lights. That makes okay. sense. Mm -hmm. And finally, damage to the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain responsible for learning and memory, and the amygdala, which is the area rage. of the brain responsible for emotions. <laughs> I always say rage. <laughs> that may lead to emotional experiences, memory flashbacks, or a life review. And interestingly enough, there was an article that came out at February 28th from the Smithsonian Magazine. Ooh, I won't read the whole thing. Recent. But... The um, little caption says, an elderly epilepsy patient unexpectedly died during a brain scan, which was an EEG, okay. revealing bursts of activity associated with memory recall, meditation, and dreaming. So it's a recent hmm. case of, I mean, this, this guy died. It was a, it was a death experience, not a near-death experience. Oh, but they, me. but they were, <laughs> they were able to see what his brain was doing, they captured which does it. not happen often. Yeah. Which actually led me to think, and I, I'm it's positive this has been done, <laughs> is, do you think that Sorry. there have been studies, I'm sure there have, like in a hospice house where they... Connect people to EEGs and they kind of try and learn what happens as somebody is dying. I'm sure there's been some studies. I'm sure there has been. I mean, they do studies on everything else with the brain, like play music and see what parts of your brain light up. Yeah. Hear your I loved one speak. The hard part about hospice is, you know, hospice is geared towards comfort mm -hmm. and well, at the you end can still of do life. that. Like if the, the patient volunteers to do yeah. that, then. Yeah. And it's not like, I mean, I, EEGs aren't painful. Right. So. so just something interesting and something recent in the news. Very cool. Which was very interesting. So next is the neurochemical model where some theories report near-death experiences are the result of drugs used during resuscitation or from the release of a large amount of neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. which are the internal chemicals that transmit signals between brain cells. So one thought is that endorphins and encephalins, which are our body's natural painkillers released in the brain, are rapidly released in times of stress 
and lead to a reduction in pain perception in a pleasant, even blissful emotional state. Others argue that serotonin, which is a chemical in the body that helps with mood regulation or happiness, among other things, play a more important role than endorphins in generating near-death experiences and contribute to hallucinations and out-of-body experiences. Interestingly, a study in 2019, very recent, found that psychedelic substances like LSD, acid, magic mushrooms, acid, shrooms, <laughs> ketamine even, peyote, and others. Why do I know all these? <laughs> well, we don't want to know. That these are linked to near-death experiences. So on to the multifactorial models, which, as the name suggests, proposes that multiple many things, factors, multiple <sighs> things contribute to near-death experiences. Yes. You get an A, such as endorphins, neurotransmitters, the ten- temporal lobe, and other parts of the brain. Then we have the low oxygen model, which suggests that low blood oxygen levels <laughs> induce hallucinations, which could mm-hmm. contribute to near-death experiences. You don't I feel say. like we've just talked about that. With the bins. Yeah. We did. We did. We did. Next are the altered blood gas models, where some investigators have studied whether hypercarbia, which is an elevated amount of carbon dioxide in the blood, could explain near-death experiences. So carbon dioxide toxicity can lead to changes in sight and hearing and mentation, uh, which are all things that some people experience during near-death experiences. Other theories that try to explain near-death experiences are false memories, general malfunction of the brain as a result of decreased blood flow, or hallucinations caused by lack of oxygen, drugs, or brain damage. And finally, something I found particularly interesting was the idea that near-death experiences often involve vivid and complex mentation, sensation, and memory formation under severe circumstances like disabling brain function during anesthesia or near complete cessation of blood flow during to the brain during cardiac arrest. So those are times during anesthesia and during cardiac arrest where you don't expect the brain to get much activity or oxygen and you wouldn't think that there would be anything that would come out of that. Your brain is basically thought to be asleep during that time. Mm-hmm. As the most simplistic way to put it. However, conscious experiences like near-death experiences should be impossible under these conditions. So near-death experiences are, some could argue, the most in-the-moment visceral experiences somebody can have. Yet they're happening under circumstances where your brain should be asleep. So it's just an interesting concept yeah, um, it makes me think of, you know, when someone is dying, you usually hear that their hearing is kind of the last thing to go. So their brain is obviously still working up until hmm. and then beyond because they say that they can still hear you talking. Right. Yeah. yeah, just reminds you that it's probably still going on. It's right. probably still working. Right. As a side note, something a little scary that one study showed that nearly 22% of near-death experiences occurred during anesthesia. And that feels like a lot of people to die, to nearly die during surgery. Mm -hmm. So basically, several ideas, several theories, but ultimately no one knows for sure. Well, I'm going to follow that up with a little bit more medical talk. Like you mentioned in your section, this has a lot, it's very wordy. There's a lot of details that go in it. So I tried my best to just kind of like generalize the studies. But if you want to know the details of them all, you can just go check them out yourself. They are pages and pages long. 
Um, so there's just a couple that I was going to talk about. The first one is Parnia's study in 2001. This was done by Sam Parnia. He was a doctor and director of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And some of his colleagues, they published the results of a year-long study of cardiac arrest survivors. So what that means is cardiac arrest means the heart has stopped and the patient is clinically dead. Uh, there were 63 people interviewed, and all of them had been resuscitated or brought back to life after being clinically dead with no pulse, no respirations, and fixed dilated pupils. So those people who are not in medical field, those are the three things that you look for before you have to declare a patient or somebody dead. Uh, they were investigating out-of-body experiences, and they determined that four of the 63 people interviewed had NDEs, but none of them had out-of-body experiences. Hmm. Interesting. The next one is Van Lommel's study, and this was done in 2001 by Pim Van Lommel, a cardiologist from the Netherlands, and his team conducted a study on near-death experiences. It included 344 cardiac arrest patients who were successfully resuscitated. That's quite a bit of people, really. Uh, one patient had an out-of-body experience, and he reported being able to watch and recall events during the time of his cardiac arrest. His claims were confirmed by the hospital. So he told them that, kind of similar to what I was telling in the beginning, right. that in his experience, he basically could see everything in the room and he could see things on top of shelves. That was part of the next study that I'll mention too about shelves and placing things. But he was saying things that he could hear, that things were going on, that the the things that they were doing to resuscitate him and he wasn't a medical person and they were all able to confirm his story that that was actually true that that happened the last one is the awareness during resuscitation study also called aware clever <laughs> that is great who knew who knew uh, dr parnia he's back again he became the principal investigator for the aware study that was conducted from 2008 to 2012 it included 33 investigators from 15 medical centers in the UK, Austria, and the US. So they're trying to spread it out worldwide. That's where your snail is from. Oh my God. You know how to say that. My snail is from Austria. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it'd come in handy. <laughs> they tested consciousness, memories, and awareness during cardiac arrest. Um, they installed shelves with images on top of them, not visible to hospital staff in the room where the cardiac arrest patients would most likely be. So I'm imagining probably like a trauma room or something of that sort yeah. that they mm -hmm. had it. That only they knew that they were there. 101 survivors could complete the questionnaire. Uh, so they were given this questionnaire afterwards and 9% were classified as NDE, but nobody could say what was on the shelves in this study. Hmm. The last one I wanted to mention, I know this, I said the last one was, but I think you touched a little bit on the Buddhist meditation, but there was just a little bit of a little section on that one called meditation induced NDEs. A study shows that some Buddhist meditation practitioners are able to induce near death experiences upon themselves. No, thank you. Participants Why were able to? <laughs> to control the content and the duration of their NDE, which honestly, they would be, I think, the most useful and fascinating in that because they can, if supposedly, control it and then be able to bring themselves back and talk about it. So I'm going to finish it up with some cross-cultural aspects of this. Gregory Shushan published an analysis of the afterlife beliefs of five ancient civilizations and compared them with NDEs and other afterlife journeys. He noted similarities across time, place, and culture that were found that were not explained by coincidences. 
He theorized that experiences of an afterlife are influenced by culture, and they in turn influence near-death experiences. Near-death experiences are influenced, like I said, by religious, social, and cultural backgrounds, yet the core elements like those we've talked about with the tunnel and the bright light and seeing your loved ones, those are considered pretty universal and are reported by children who are not yet influenced by these. The central features of near-death experiences have not been influenced by time and are considered universal. But it has been argued in 2018 that near-death experiences are closely related to religious and spiritual traditions of the West, such as heaven and God and judgment. And these were first reported by Christian visionaries and spiritualists in the early 19th and 20th centuries. So, you know, even for people who are not Christians or whatever, I mean, everybody knows about the near-death experiences with heaven and God and judgment. So they think that's why they experience that. Interesting. Okay. So my question to Lindsay Uh-oh. is, do you feel like near-death experiences are A, a coincidence? Oh, gosh. Multiple choice. <laughs> B. When in doubt, go with C. <laughs> a true experience of the afterlife or C, none of the above and you have your own explanation. None of the above and I have my own explanation. <laughs> okay. When in doubt, go with C. So I think the medical side is very interesting. I think parts of the brain, like you said, being hit or under trauma can cause those things for sure. I don't, I don't believe the people who say that they went to heaven. I think you can have a near death experience and like the light and like out of body experiences for sure. That's fair. Why do you, I guess my first question is, and there's no wrong answer because it's each person's belief. I feel put on the spot. Do you believe in heaven? <laughs> Yes. So why couldn't somebody briefly go there and then be brought back? Because I think, and this is my own faith coming into it, I think if anyone goes to heaven, there is nothing in this world that would bring you back to Like, that would make you want to come back. And I believe that if you make it to heaven, God is not going to send you back. Like, once you see heaven, because it's perfection, it's everything that the world is not, there's no way you would want to come back to earth. Because you've seen perfection. That's my theory. Can that be explained, though, by the people that have to be pushed back into their bodies? Like, you're not done here yet. You've got more to do. But those, so people are saying that they are seeing their loved ones who've passed before them. So that, to me, does not mean that they are in heaven. Because I also think once we get to heaven, I don't think you're going to know. Like, I don't think I'm going to know my husband or my family or anyone once I get to heaven. So I think those experiences could be something. I don't think they're in heaven, though. What? Is your take? What are your beliefs and your thoughts on it? It's hard for me because my brain is so science based. Um, but man, when you hear people talking about it, it's like, gosh, how do you believe people's experiences aren't true? And when so many people have them, then you start to think, well, maybe, maybe these things do happen more often. I do think there is a lot of scientific factors that play mm-hmm. into certain things but there's other things that i think are kind of unexplainable like you know the people who are saying that they had these out-of-body experiences and were seeing or hearing things in the room that were nowhere near their body at the time and in one of the stories i forgot to mention from the beginning the the lady that died or no she didn't die that had the amniotic fluid embolus Mm -hmm. she came out of the room and went across the hospital and she said she could see her daughter in the waiting room with her nanny and could describe exactly what her daughter 
was doing at the time. So those kinds of things, you're just like, that's pretty crazy. Those are pretty unexplainable. But I do think it's fascinating to hear about what the brain does and all the things that all the chemicals that are released during trauma and codes. And, and there is a lot that goes into it. And I think there's a lot about the brain that we don't fully understand either. That's what I was going to say. Like the brain is fascinating. I don't think we'll ever understand fully how well it works. Right. And what it's capable of. I'm not a huge, hugely religious person. So I'm not on the, I don't necessarily think people are going to heaven per se. I think they're just having these out-of-body experiences and seeing loved ones that have passed. I do think that that probably happens to them. Yeah. But what about you? The thing that gets me is what I touched on where these happen in time, traumatic times typically when your brain shouldn't be getting enough oxygen, shouldn't be getting the stuff Mm -hmm. to function basically. Yeah. If you're sick enough, your blood kind of diverts to the most – valuable organs Mm -hmm. and that's just enough to keep you alive Mm -hmm. and that while your brain does get blood whenever you're very sick your brain does not function at the level where it normally does so it it partially shunts away from that to keep Mm -hmm. your heart going and your liver going and your lungs going Mm -hmm. and so i just think it's interesting where these high brain activities Mm -hmm. happen during these experiences my personal belief system is kind of actually between the two of you. I think that there is a heaven and I think it's possible to kind of get there and get a glimpse. Um, But I also believe that um, our souls have a life mission, something that they need to accomplish during this life. And that if we haven't accomplished that yet, then it's not our time to go. And that's what I believe leads our family members, whoever our deceased loved ones are, to kind of push us back into our mm-hmm. bodies and be like, no, you still got some work to do here. <laughs> yep. Stick around. Put some more simply is I believe these are true afterlife experiences. Yeah. I guess my thing is if you believe in heaven, then obviously you believe in hell. So why aren't we hearing those experiences? That's a good point. We didn't touch on... And I think I only briefly mentioned it. There are negative near-death okay. experiences. Everything was saying like warmth and light and right. love. There are very negative experiences that people have experienced. And it is interesting that that isn't common or that it's not 50-50. Because right. I feel like people across the board experience different things. The, so The I just, pregnant lady that I was mentioning, she also said that she didn't describe it as hell, but she said, everybody describes their experiences, warm, light, love, and loved ones in heaven. And mine was not that. Mine was a very unpleasant experience. So while she mm. saw her daughter, what all these things were right. happening, but she remembers it as a very negative experience. So, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I think it just boils down to, we don't we don't know what happens. Right. And it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And they're studying it. I think that's cool too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there we go. That was Indies. Near-death experiences. <laughs> Nitties. Okay. <laughs> Turns out it was a really interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Who knew? All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to our near-death experience topic. You can always find us at thetipsyghost.com with our socials linked from there. Or send us an email at thetipsyghost at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star rating or, or a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really does help. All right, guys. Thanks so much. We will catch you next week. Vises. Tschüss. Bye. <laughs>